Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards and this episode we have a very special guest. We're going to hear from Jason Orthman, Lead Portfolio Manager, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Executive Director at Hyperion. Jason is Lead Portfolio Manager across all of their three equity strategies. They're Aussie equities, small caps, and global equities. But for this podcast episode, we're going to focus the conversation predominantly on the global equities. Some background on Jason. He has completed multiple degrees, which I'm going to ask about shortly. He's also a former member of the Wilson's team too. Cut his teeth on the Wilson's research team back in 2002, moved across from the sell side to the buy side to Hyperion back in 2008 as an investment analyst, and shortly was promoted to a portfolio manager. Jason, welcome to the Invest at Best podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Ted. I'm happy to be here. Cheers. Well, before we get into our discussion on global, global equities, I just want to touch on a part of your education that I skimmed over briefly there. You completed the Bachelor of Chemical Engineering with First Class Honours. Now, that's not the typical path of a fund manager. And, and to be fair, that's coming from a former athlete who now works in the industry too. Jason, how has a chemical engineering degree helped you to be a better investor? Yeah, okay. Thanks, Ted. Um, yeah, it's been more useful than, than expected because, I mean, in this industry, I think you need to be creative, but you also need to be analytical. So obviously, you're looking for insights, you're looking for edges, you're looking to try and understand the world. But you do really need a framework, you need processes, and, and you need uh, you need structures to capture that. And I think the good thing about chemical engineering is um, really it's process-driven, it's intellectually rigorous, and it teaches you how to um, solve, solve tough problems. So when we think about what we're trying to do, we're really clear about the inefficiencies we're trying to exploit in the market. But how do you capture that alpha consistently? And everything Hyperion does is evidence-based, it's structured, and and so that engineering background's been useful. And, and in fact, um, a couple of our uh, most recent hires have, have also had an engineering background. So I think as we look forward, I think um, the diversity in the team, just away from traditional finance or commerce, will um, potentially continue. Well, you touched on the framework there, and that's what I'm interested in. So let's go back to investing and, and look at the, the global fund that you're lead portfolio manager of. In my research, the global fund on, on the website, it says invest in high quality companies from around the world. So can you provide us with the framework that you use to determine what a high quality company is, say compared to the rest of the pack? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think everyone talks about quality and, and believes they're quality investors, but to your point, it's how do you define that and, and how, do you, how do you differentiate? And 
when we look globally, there's about 100 names in, in our universe and, and we do a business quality score on, on each of those potential elite structural growth businesses. Um, and so we have a detailed qualitative research template um, that these businesses need to go through effectively a, a quality filter. But really what we're trying to do um, to, to simplify is find the absolute dominant market leaders with proven underlying economics that can grow for long periods of time. And so within that, you really do need a strong value proposition, something to offer um, the customer that's that's differentiated. You need a strong, sustainable, um, competitive advantage. And so a lot of those qualitative elements are really important. And at the end of the day, you probably want a 10x improvement in the product or service um, you're offering. And so, you know, others define quality differently. But for example, a modest growth business isn't a quality company for us. To be a quality company, you to be growing at, at high rates. Um, and so it's very particular what we do. And when we look at a basket of growth companies, in our view, a lot of those businesses are momentum or concept stocks and will not persist. And then a few within that um, basket of stocks are actually really high quality that will persist, grow at high rates um, for some of those qualitative reasons that we mentioned. All right. I want to um, dig in there and, and and maybe if we kind of look at themes that you like to, um, to, to unpack that. One theme is um, transition to sustainable energy and transport that I, I believe that you like. Another theme is a shift to AI-based software platforms and there's a there's another theme that i also noticed you like around robotics and if you put these three themes together you you have pretty much the tesla business model so it's no coincidence that you have a very large or have had a large position to in tesla for quite a while now and i want to chat about tesla for a bit here but before i do out of interest when did you first buy tesla um we purchased tesla in um January 2020. So as that is an entry point, it's been around a 10 bag or increased 10 times in that sort of 18-month period, which is you know pretty unusual to get that sort of appreciation in a short period of time. And um, so, yeah, that's that's the, the history of that investment. Okay. Well, uh, I think there's a bit more I want to speak to because whilst many investors might have a bit of a false memory effect around Tesla and think that these returns, this this ten bagger that you mentioned, were kind of obvious to all at the time. That was how it's going to play out over the last two years. But it wasn't for all. You know, for a while there, Tesla had some funding concerns. Many were laughing at the valuation Tesla had, and I and I won't I won't say that I wasn't in this camp too at times. Some even had concerns around Elon Musk's having that kind of infamous joint on the Joe Rogan pod, podcast. So, can we go back? to January 2020 and talk me through your decision-making to invest in Tesla back in the early days for Hyperion? Yeah, sure. So um, it was really October 2019 where we believed the business went investment grade. Um, And that means to us it's effectively gone from a speculative investment um, and the fundamental risk has has gone out out of that business. And the reason we identified that and and got the inflection point is because we'd been monitoring Tesla for three to five years. So it'd been through our qualitative research templates, been through our financial models. Um, but to your point, like there was a lot of controversy it, it went through and there was a lot of fundamental risk around that business as it did incur large debt to try and try and scale up. But what we noticed around October 2019 was that it was on the inflection point in terms of producing both profits 
and free cash flows. And it had gone through that um, production hell and it actually um, scaled up. Um, so the fundamental risk um, had gone um, had gone out of the business. Um, and, and that doesn't mean it was an, an easy decision. Like the safest thing for us to have done is not made that purchase. Like there was, you know, short, 25% of the reg- register was short. Um, there was a lot of negative to negativity through the mainstream press. But when Hyperion's at our best, we are getting those inflection points and actually realising these businesses have moved to a, a point of safety and the free cash flows and profits are really going to compound it um, at high rates. And and it happened a lot quicker than, than we thought. But, you know, we were really pleased to, to identify that. But even when you roll forward now, like they've just released their third quarter results. So two years on from that inflection point or that investment grade um, um, period. And, you know, there's still others, you know, calling it a meme stock or a concept stock and um, and things like that. But when you look at the reported profits, you know, record gross margins um, in auto, $2 billion in non-GAAP profits, again, free high free cash flows continue. And that's in a period they had no right to do that. I mean, you know, there's um, chip shortages, there's supply constraints, their um, premium Model S and Model X are being revamped and not, not at full production. Then factories in Berlin and Austin are still to come. Um, you know, and 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 so um, just focusing on the fundamentals, and I think that history of what want monitoring it for a long time and, and being brave enough to act when when, you, when we had conviction all, all contributed um, to that uh, history. You mentioned conviction there. I think I, I saw in your research, you, know, you normally have a 10 or a 20 year view. How does picking a 10 bagger so early change that 10 or 20 year view when the temptation might be there to, to take some off the table? Yeah. So when, when we look at um, Tesla, we, we still believe it's, it's day one and and it's still our highest conviction investment in the global fund. It's still sitting at a 12.5% weight um, because when we look out over the next 10 years, the intrinsic value is still substantially above um, the current share price. So the forecast internal rate of return is still really elevated. So Tesla, because of that con- controversy, because of getting it early, it was really misunderstood and the forecast internal rate of returns were really quite extreme and we hadn't seen really events like that. Square was sort of similar um, in that investment, but and we'd have to go back to the GFC to see those sort of elevated forecast internal rate of returns, but they were very stock specific to, to Tesla. But the reason is when we look out 10 years and you're right, forecast out 25 years, um, we're capturing um, a lot of those those earnings or, or future cash flows to come. And that's what investing is about. It's about looking forward where the business will be, not where it is at the moment. And so at the moment, Tesla you know, won't produce a million cars um, this year, but we believe by the end of the decade, we'll produce sort of over 10 million cars or become, become a market leader. Um, just to give um, a sense um, of, of the listeners where it's going. And, and then outside its core auto business, there's another five or six energy, sorry, five or six um, revenue drivers as well um, that, that you can can build in. So we've got a lot of conviction because of that quality, that confidence in the qualitative elements. I mean, we used to say Amazon was the most um, innovative, disruptive business we've ever seen. Now we, we describe that as Tesla, um, but you need those earnings to to you know, appear in the, in the next 10 years. And if you take a, move your framework from a one-year sort of prism to a 10-year prism, Tesla goes from you know, optically expensive to incredibly cheap. Um, and so our conviction remains unwavering. And um, yeah, it, it's, it's still day one, we believe. Well, Jason, you, you've already answered my next question in that there was 
probably a large segment of the the population that might have been of the view that Tesla has been fully valued for a while now, and then something happens like what we we saw just a matter of days ago when um, Hertz, barely four months out of their own bankruptcy, goes and out and puts a, an order in for a hundred thousand Teslas the other day, and you know the share price jumps on this news. Yeah, with this in mind. You've, you just outlined, you know, where you think we are in the Tesla story and, and the the further business opportunities. One that I want to dig into there is the new Tesla insurance that um, actively monitors brakes turning, forward collision, etc. Can you give give listeners a bit of an update on what's happening here with, I believe, it's called telematics for around the world and, and auto insurance and and how you see this potentially playing out. Yeah, sure. So that that is one of those, you know, five or six key revenue drivers o- over time, and it, and it's really interesting because um, Tesla's got the ability to disrupt a pretty traditional um, um, industry with new technology. So historically, if if you look to take um, um, auto insurance, you do things like how old how old are you? What's your gender? How long you've been driving? You know elements like that, and and we'd argue that's old technology, and 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 clearly with Tesla, the, the amount of miles travelled, the real time updates it gets from from its fleet and um, and its um, Tesla drivers, you can actually encapture inca- um, real time data, and what they've introduced is effectively a safety score, and so you can actually personalise, you can offer different premiums. Um, to, um, to those drivers, so it's really a modern solution for an old problem, and and we expect the premiums will come down significantly because you can just price more more effectively, um, and so we think a large proportion of, of Tesla drivers will take um, that insurance offering from from Tesla. At the moment, it's rolled out through California, then into Texas, and and they're looking at moving to to New York. But I mean, it it is a large market, like. On our estimates in the in the US, it's a $250 billion market. But again, to take a step back, when we look at the markets that Tesla's trying to disrupt, it's a US $20 trillion, trillion market. Um, so insurance will is a pretty exciting space. Um, you know, we think they'll add value there, um, but it is relatively small to that that broader pie that you talked about with auto, you know, ride sharing and, and uh, traditional energy being disrupted. Uh, that's fascinating. I, I think there was a famous study that was done a while ago where uh, people were asked if they think they're a better driver than the average, and something like eighty or ninety percent of people said yes. So it's going to be some people are going to get some uh, interesting feedback when they find out that yes, they may be, or uh, they're not they're not such the good driver that they think they are. Absolutely. Let's move over to a, another business you actually just touched on earlier. And that's uh, and another another theme that you like the shift from cash to electronic payments. When you touched on Square, and I believe you've owned Square for a while, and and I might add Afterpay too. Do you have a view on Jack Dorsey? Because I feel he's kind of like Michael Jordan, but he's playing both the basketball and baseball at the same time. Obviously, basketball at Square and baseball at Twitter as feel that Twitter has fallen behind in the other social media platforms. But how do you view Jack Dorsey as a CEO of, of two large companies? Yeah, you're right. It's um, a, a pretty unusual um, situation and and clearly you need to delegate well. And um, all our interactions with, with Square is the lieutenants are, are really strong. 
um, and and they're executing executing really well. And when you go into the founder space, it's not as unusual as as you may first think. You've got obviously Elon Musk running a number of businesses, Jeff Bezos doing something similar. And I think when you want to get access to those sort of special entrepreneurial um, individuals, you do have to make some um, compromises and, and you have to get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, they're not working on that particular business um, um, full um, full time, but the insights that they have and, and the ability to lead is, is pretty important. And when we look back at what Hyperion sort of achieved, um, a lot of these special companies are being driven by special individuals. Um, and some of them, you know, are called Mavericks. And, and you know, you probably put Elon Musk in, in that basket from, from um, Tesla. But by actually looking through your normal prison and actually backing, you know, normal executives, you're missing out on some of the best compounding vehicles that you, that you can find. And so by Hyperion being a little bit more open-minded, being prepared to get a little bit uncomfortable, I think, you know, we've done that better than most and, and really benefited from that. And, um, and so when we're looking at these founder-led businesses, obviously track records matter, being highly intelligent matters, um, but we're a, um, a little bit more willing to compromise um, to go on that journey with some of these um, individuals. And I, I think no, um, Jack's no different, particularly at um, Square. Jason, what we've spoken about so far, the companies, we've got Tesla, Square, and I know you've had a that, that large position in Afterpay too. And a consistent theme here is identifying early trends and acting on those. And I'm interested in another trend that we're seeing right now, um, albeit you know, slightly different, is what we're seeing in the cryptocurrency space. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on on how you see this playing out. Yeah, it's 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 a good point. And we've been following payments, you know, closely in that structural theme over over the last um, 10 years because it is a pretty lucrative space if you can can select those market um, leaders. Um, and and so we've done our own internal um, papers on on um, cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin. I mean, it's not a, not our day job, but um, some of the companies that we own have, have put that on balance sheet. And, and again, you've mentioned them like the Teslas, the Squares, but um, it's certainly becoming mainstream. Um, and we don't think it's um, a ridiculous idea um, those cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin, as well as as the as the market leader, the pr- predominant share, um, you know, makes the the most sense to play it um, through through that way. But we believe that the internet deserves effectively its own own currency. Um, so there is a role um, for some something modern, um, and you can argue with the amount of coins, particularly in Bitcoin, being limited. You do have a a, a gold 2.0 or a modern way. Um, to actually have an inflation um, inflation head, so we do believe there is some merit. Um, look, you know, if you step back and look through that framework about you know the internet needing its own currency, whether it's a it's a modern in- inflation hedge. So uh, you know we're open minded to that, and and you can value it um, too. Like if you actually take five trillion of gold um, and then another as part of jewellery, and then and then another five trillion um, that's stored, yeah, um, you've got an addressable market. Um, across a number of fixed um, fixed coins, um, so again, not our not our day job, but um, we can understand why you know some people get excited about that and and how they can value it at at um, at higher levels. So it's something we continue to monitor, and um, you know when when Tesla and Square you know ventured in that as effectively an asset allocation decision, you know we weren't that upset about it. Like we had a lot a lot of people you know wanted us to engage with the companies. 
you know, actually push back on that. And, and we were actually quite comfortable with them doing that, um, you know, for the reasons that, that um, you know, we, we talked through. Turned out to be a very good call by, um, by Tesla. Um, let's shift our attention across to China and have a look at, look at what's been playing out this year. As you have quite a few large exposures in China, in, in particular Tencent and Alibaba. Now, fear and greed always move the market, and I feel like what's happening in China right now is a great example. So off the back of recent events and policies by the CCP, can you give listeners some insight on how you view investing in China right now, considering this uncertainty? Yeah, so like usually we look for non-fundamental moves in, in share prices um, and look to, look to take advantage of um, any uncertainty. But the issue with what's happening in China and those particular um, stocks, it, it's actually quite quite unusual. And um, if you go back um, to to first principles, like we were we were on record as saying that a dollar of revenue received in China is not as valuable as a dollar revenue achieved in other developed markets, and that is because of the fundamental risk um, in a market like China. The fact that there's no um, real recourse um, through the court system, a lack of property rights. Clearly, the country led by one party, arguably one one individual. So it's a very unique situation. The risk profile goes up significantly. And so we'd monitored Alibaba and Tencent for over five years. Um, they are both wonderful businesses looking for an opportunity um, to, to enter those. And we got that through COVID-19. Um, but, you know, the actual um, investment returns actually haven't been that great, even though the forecast internal rate of returns were quite elevated because the rhetoric from the Chinese Communist Party continued to um, increase through that period. But through the portfolio management process that we have, where our valuations are risk adjusted, the weights have always been relatively low. So as we look at Alibaba and Tencent today, our aggregate weight um, of those two businesses is less than 2%. Admittedly, some of that has been of late with the share prices falling and we actually haven't been purchasing. Um, and so when we look out from here, we really need the incremental news flow um, to become more positive. And if, in fact, if it you extrapolated what's, what's been going on day to day, you know, you could argue that you know, we may exit um, at some point. Um, so it's a really unusual circumstances because most of the time when we have conviction in our businesses, um, in our risk adjustments, we would be aggressively buying. That's not the case um, um, for, for China because of the fundamental risk um, um, that's occurring in that market at the moment. This might be a hard question to answer. Could you provide an example of something that would give you inv- um, confidence to increase your, your investments in China? Yeah, so that's the, the interesting thing. If, if these businesses were in another operating in, environment, um, you know, there'd, there'd be no-brainers. You'd have really large weights and maybe you could argue or, you know, these businesses should be at 10 or 12% weights, um, but it's very hard <laughs> to shift those businesses out, out of that operating um, environment because the network effects that they've got are real, the dominance that, and access to the consumers they've got are real. And because a lot of the consumers are digital natives, they're actually a little bit earlier um, in terms of where payments is, is going. So, um, but really, yeah, you'd need some stabilisation in, in that um, political framework. Um, but it, it's really hard to see. But we continue to watch that. And, and that's why we haven't exited. Because, again, to your point earlier, Ted, like we want to take a 10 or 20-year view. 
Um, and, and so that's why we've retained these businesses. So we haven't bought, we haven't sold. We've just managed the weights down over time as the rhetoric started, you know, mid to late um, last cal- um, calendar year. Um, but we'll continue to monitor that from, from, from day to day. I found it quite fascinating that example you used of the value of, of making money um, in China isn't of the same value of making, say, a dollar in the US. I'm interested in in sticking with that example. Is there a difference in, say, the value of earning a dollar in Australia compared to the US? Um, well, when, when we look globally, and, and you've obviously got 200-odd markets, there's about 20 markets that we believe we're receiving a dollar um, is equal to receiving a dollar elsewhere in those 20 markets. So, you know, we'd put Australia, the US, some of those European markets on par on par together. But as soon as you go outside of those um, top 20 markets, the risk really increases. And, and a lot of people got dragged into China or get excited about emerging markets because you might get lower PEs, the potential growth through those populations, but they're not risk adjusting those earning streams. And that's something that's embedded in in Hyperion's process, if we have one stock with a forecast, say 20% per annum internal rate of return, another one with um, a 20% internal rate of return, the weights can be completely different because the weight of that position in a portfolio should be risk adjusted. How confident are you in achieving those forecasts in, in 10 years time? How confident are you in the management team? How predictable are those earning streams? Um, and so you need to risk adjust, um, otherwise, um, you're not looking at it a whole holistic um, holistic viewpoint. And um, and so when we've looked back over time at our, our returns, we've seen larger forecast returns um, at lower risk um, in, in other markets outside some of those emerging markets, which has been a pretty um, counter uh, consensus view um, over over a long, long period of time, but we believe absolutely remains valid. Okay, the final topic that I'd like to discuss is inflation something that impacts all businesses, albeit some more so than others. Jason, what's your view on the likelihood of inflation ramping up? And taking this into account, how have you positioned, say, all three of your portfolios? Yeah, so Hyperion's evidence-based and and we believe you don't get a seat at the table or you don't um, deserve an opinion unless you've done the work and, um, and you've thought through issues um, clearly. And, and so we've done that through um, on the topic of inflation. We've released a, a number of white papers where we try to actually think through the think through these issues. And um, we still believe after that work that the inflation that we're experiencing at the moment will be transitory or temporary. Um, and so you can see that in 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 what's driving the higher inflation figures. And a lot of it to us looks like a rebasing effect or effectively the world going from shutting down to opening up. So you can see higher energy prices, higher used car prices, more ticket prices, this higher spend on durables um, as, you, as you're stuck at home. And, and then when you look at um, key core parts of inflation, such as rent, medical, education, they've increased, but nowhere near um, um, to the same, same sort of level. Um, so we've we've broken that down and, and continue to monitor that. But when we look out over the next 10 to 20 years, we believe the macro structural drivers will determine whether you have inflation or disinflation. And we still believe there's more risk of disinflation than inflation. And that's because, again, those macro drivers, like the hollowing out of the middle class, the rising debt levels, the aging population, the fact that 
um, technology is really disruptive to tr traditional energy, traditional auto, which are large parts of your CPI or, or inflation in, inflation figures. Um, but of course, you know we could be we could be wrong. Um, we think it's unlikely that inflation will be sustained. Um, but even it, even um, if it is, we, we obviously need to have insurance through the through the portfolios and, and be aware of that. Um, and so the pricing power in all three products of the individual stocks is actually really, really high. Um, and we actually track and, and measure and rank um, um, the, these businesses by effectively being inflate, um, inflation hedge hedges, and that flows into our, our risk adjustments. And so sticking with the, the global theme, for example, some of these businesses like Tesla, Microsoft, they've been putting through prices because they don't have the demand issue. Um, but I think what people have missed is if you've got these really elite businesses that can actually pass on your increased cost of goods sold, your increased funding costs to your consumers, that means your nominal cash flows go up and your real cash flows are retained. So even though if inflation goes up, interest rates go up, your discount rates go up, you can offset that through higher nominal cash flows and retaining your real cash flows and retaining your intrinsic value. But the only businesses that will be able to do that um, are your modern businesses, your natural monopolistic type businesses, not your average benchmark type um, type companies. Um, so we're very conscious to make sure, okay, these modern SaaS businesses that haven't priced for va um, value yet, some of these advertising link um, businesses that are inflation hedges have significant weights in the port um, in all of the um, portfolios, and we think we'll be absolutely fine. Um, if inflation does take off, but again, we don't believe that's but um, that's the base case. But we're we're prepared for it anyway. Well, Jason, it's been absolutely fascinating. That's it for another episode of the Invested Best podcast. Jason, thank you for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having us, Tim. Cheers. And and I should also add that Jason and the Hyperion team actually won the Lonsec Active Equity Fund of the Year. So, Jason, well done to you and your team on that achievement. If you're interested in what was discussed, then best to either go to the Hyperion website where you'll be able to find further information on Jason, his team, and or go to wilsonadvisory.com.au if you're interested in speaking with an advisor about what was discussed today. Also, if you're enjoying these podcast episodes, make sure you subscribe so you receive all future episodes as they come out. And if you like what you've been hearing, then please share it with a friend or two. See you next time on the Invest It Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.